Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, Episode 10, The Kidnapping of Pocahontas. This podcast is listener-supported. If you enjoy this project, please support it. You can do that by going to the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com, and clicking on the PayPal subscription button to sign up for membership. It only costs $5 per month, which is the cost of a Starbucks coffee or a drink on a night out. So if you get more enjoyment from this podcast per month than a beer, then please consider signing up. Special thanks to our newest pioneers, listeners Thomas and Harold. Thank you guys. I could not do this show without you. So, in April 1613, the English kidnapped Pocahontas. Yeah, that happened. I said last week that nothing really happens for a few years. Well, the narrative just sort of restarts with the English suddenly kidnapping Pocahontas, the now 17 or 18-year-old daughter of Wilhelm Sonnecock. Argyle had been sailing along the Potomac and had become very friendly with the tribes in the area. This is highly significant, as it showed Wahun Sonnecock's disintegrating power base. While the English suffered once the Powhatans were able to deal with other Europeans, so they would suffer once the English began to form diplomatic links with other tribes. Argyle managed to get some of them to support his plan of kidnapping her in order to gain some diplomatic advantage with Wahun Sonnecock. His friends were persuaded, and they lured her onto an English ship for a meal, and then she wasn't allowed to leave and was taken back to Jamestown. The version of events recorded by Ralph Hummel writes that the English demanded food, prisoners, and the stolen weapons from Wahun Sonnecock in exchange for Pocahontas. Wahun Sonnecock refused to respond for three months, before offering a couple of the deserters and food in exchange for the stolen weapons, which he claimed had been lost. Yes, lost. Dale didn't believe this for some reason, and refused the deal. Until the weapons were returned, Pocahontas would be kept prisoner. She would be well-treated, but she was still a hostage. In the meantime, there could be war, or peace, between the English and the Powhatans, but that choice was up to Wahun Sonnecock. Then, nothing really happened. Pocahontas grew frustrated with her father for doing nothing to try and free her, while she was sent to Henrico. She learned English and about Christianity, and became friends with several of the settlers, including John Rolfe. Dale decided that he was going to force Wahun Sonnecock to make a decision, and so set out with 150 men in order to get the deal he originally offered Wahun Sonnecock a year ago. We are now in 1614. En route, they were attacked... Their retaliation scared the locals into leaving them alone. Finally, they met a force of 400 warriors who were with Openchankinov. It looked as though fighting was going to break out, but then two of Pocahontas's brothers came forward and demanded to see her. They found that she had been well-treated, and this allowed negotiations to begin with Openchankinov, who was conferring with Wahun Sonnecock. 
What was agreed was that the English weapons and tools would be returned within 15 days, along with some food, while Pocahontas would be made a daughter of Dale and was allowed to stay at Jamestown. The weapons and food were indeed sent, and five years of war were brought to a close. This suited Pocahontas just fine. She enjoyed living with the English, and she had freedom within the settlement. All the sources agree that she was tremendously bright, no doubt spending time immersed in another culture was intellectually stimulating for her. She had also formed friendships, and had grown very close to Rolf. Rolf informed Dale that he wished to marry Pocahontas, and that she wished to marry him too. She was going to take the name Rebecca, and embrace Christianity. Dale was delighted and agreed, while Sonicock also consented, and on April 5th, 1614, the ceremony was conducted in Jamestown Church. It was hoped that this was a sign of the age of peace and unity to come, a change you can paint with all the colours of the wind. Another agreement was soon made with another tribe, which saw them submit to the English, and offer the use of several hundred bowmen against the Spanish, should they attack. This was good, but it would be foolish to overestimate the closeness of the two people. This was, in the eyes of Wahonsanakok and Openchankinov, a temporary deal. Useful, so that they could catch their breath, but they certainly did not view themselves as conquered. Dale, however, was delighted. He had won the war, brought peace, and secured the future of the colony. Another moment of significance. Rolf sent on a ship back to England four barrels of tobacco, which arrived in June 1614. This was the beginning of the tobacco trade, which would come to dominate Virginia. A few years later, Rolf would conduct a overview of the colony. He estimated there were 351 English colonists in Virginia at this point, of whom 65 were women and children. There were six horses, 144 cattle, 216 goats, plenty of hogs and poultry. Indeed, by this point, Virginia was pretty established. It wasn't the biggest settlement in the world. Virginia currently has a population of some 8 million or so people, so... 351 isn't impressive, but they were seasoned, they were no longer starving, there wasn't a threat of Spanish invasion, and peace had been achieved. When you think back to the colony being down to 38 before Newport's first supply in January 1608, or down to 60 or so before the arrival of Gates and Delaware in 1610, things were looking pretty darn good. There were three types of colonists the first of which were the officers, the second group were the labourers. These either worked directly for the company, or were artisans, such as blacksmiths or carpenters. They could supply the settlement with the products which were needed. Together, these two groups made up 250 people. The third group were the 81 farmers. They were compelled to work for the company one month a year, and could be called in to defend the colony if needed. 
Aside from this, they would support themselves through farming, and supplied two and a half barrels of corn to the general store each year. There were six settlements. Henrico, Bermuda, the largest settlement which was five miles downriver of Henrico, West and Shirley Hundred, another few miles downriver, Jamestown, Kickofton, near the mouth of the James River, and the sixth was Dale's Gift, on the far side of Chesapeake Bay. Soon after this, Dale was recalled by the company to England. If you'll allow me to quote James Horne's A Land As God Made It, Jamestown and the Birth of America, for a moment, quote, Leaving the James River on the ebb tide in April 1616, Samuel Argyle's treasurer carried one of the strangest assortments of passengers ever to make the Atlantic crossing. On board were Sir Thomas Dale, returning to England now that the colony was enjoying great prosperity and peace, John Rolfe and Pocahontas, the Lady Rebecca, with their infant son Thomas, Pocahontas's sister, Matachana, and her husband, Uta Matomakin, also called Tomakin, or Tomakomo, a priest and tribal elder instructed by Wound Sonokok to keep a careful account of everything he saw in the land of the Tasantases. Another ten or so Powhatans, mostly young women who were attending Pocahontas, and who, the Virginia Company hoped, might be induced to convert to Christianity and marry suitable Englishmen. Don Diego de Molina, relieved to be boarding after five years in Jamestown. Francis Lembry, the Hispaniolated Englishman, captured with Molina, who had served as a pilot with the Spanish Armada of 1588. He would be hanged from the end of Argyle's yardarm as the ship approached the coast of England, within sight of the land he had betrayed. And, finally, several of Dale's principals during the war, Captains Francis West, John Martin, and James Davis, who, like Dale, had decided to return home. End quote. The ship brought back tradable goods, but none were as important to the Virginia Company as Pocahontas. She was not the first Native American to go to England, but as the daughter of Wahonsonacock, she had much prestige. She was proof that Native Americans could convert to Christianity, and she excited the people as she made her way across the south from Devon to London. She was the toast of high society, even meeting King James and Queen Anne. It is all very interesting, but everyone has their own agendas at these sorts of things. The English wanted to prove that they could civilise her and show her off. Pocahontas didn't feel that way at all, though. Well, to the English, the Powhatans were savages, a term for people who were uncivilised. To Pocahontas, things were not so black and white. She didn't abandon her own culture. She could be both Powhatan and English. Tragically, Pocahontas died young. As she prepared to travel back to Virginia in March 1617, she fell ill, possibly either tuberculosis or pneumonia, and died soon afterwards. While Pocahontas exits our narrative, the same cannot be said for John Rolfe. We need to talk about smoking. 
Since it had been first brought back to England in the late 16th century, smoking tobacco had become highly fashionable. This very quickly spread its way into the lower classes, and very soon, everybody smoked. And of course, once they got hooked, people kept smoking. Tobacco has many of the same addictive qualities as tobacco. Pretty sure that's scientifically accurate. By 1614, it was claimed that the tobacco industry was worth £320,000 annually in London alone. To put that figure in context, that is six and a half times greater than the £50,000 it had taken to establish Virginia. This is what inspired John Rolfe into thinking that tobacco would be a useful enterprise. The natives grew tobacco, which they smoked, Nicotiana rustica, to give it its Latin name. It was, however, quite sharp and bitter. The English had been smoking the tobacco grown by the Spanish, Nicotiana tabacum. So, Rolf thought that it would better suit the English market to develop these varieties in Virginia. He imported seeds from Trinidad and Venezuela, and began experimenting. And, after a couple of years, he hit success. The beauty of tobacco was that it is very easy to grow, plus the fact that it is hugely addictive, and there was already a market for it. I mentioned that Rolf sent his first shipment of tobacco in 1614, but he brought a far greater amount with him in 1616, and he spent a lot of the trip dealing with London merchants himself. He needed to do this, since the king and the company both opposed tobacco. The king simply opposed smoking, and would not have been fond of Rolf for spreading the practice. I wonder how a conversation between the two would have gone. You're about to launch a terrible evil on the world. You've got to destroy this plant. I know, sire, but what can I do as an individual? I wouldn't know where to begin. Just burn that plant right now and end this madness. I wish I could make a difference, sire, but I'm just one man. Mm, I agree, but how? You know, that sort of thing. The company had a different reason for opposing tobacco. They desperately wanted to avoid the emergence of a staple crop. This would make the economy much more fragile. They wanted diversity and flexibility thinking that this, instead, would be how the company thrived. But, most importantly, they were eager to get a return on their investment. Things had been quite slow since the 1611 voyages, and they needed ways of financing the operation. They ran upon an idea inspired by their other venture. Many leading figures in the company had also funded an expedition to Bermuda, the island Bermuda, that is, not the settlement of Bermuda in Virginia. It had gone very well and had been financed by offering land grants in return for investment. So, in 1617, 150 or so settlers set off from London going back to Virginia, including Argyle, who was made deputy governor, and Rolfe. Argyle decided to make his base Jamestown and began to rebuild the settlement, it had fallen apart a bit in their absence, with only a couple of buildings left standing. It wasn't too much trouble to repair the damage, and they sent a shipment back to London in 1618, 
of £20,000 of tobacco. Which, selling for 5 shillings 3 pence per pound, made, in total, £5,250 sterling. This wasn't a huge amount, but it was far more than the colony had made previously. The economy of the colony was generally doing well. I have one more event I want to go over this week. The reorganising of Virginia in 1618-19. Virginia had already gone through two governing systems. There was the original, somewhat egalitarian, first-among-equals approach of the council with an elected presidency, but this had quickly dissolved because of infighting between Smith, Newport, Radcliffe and Wingfield, and the other leaders. This had forced the creation of the second system, implemented in 1610 with the arrival of Delaware. This was designed to restore discipline, and had been very militant. But now that things had calmed down and the colony was at peace with the Powhatans, this wasn't necessary nor attractive to the settlers. This led to the creation of the third system. First of all, the colony was divided into four areas, either known as the cities or the boroughs. These were James City, Charles City, Henrico, and Kikautan, which would later be renamed Elizabeth City. Each was given 3,000 acres for the use of the company and 1,500 acres for local administration. There were 3,000 acres near Jamestown for the use of the governor and 10,000 acres near Henrico for the construction of a university. Those already there were given 100 acres of land and then 100 more for each share they bought. Those who arrived after April 1616 were given 50 acres for themselves and an extra 50 for every person they transported. This would be how Virginia grew in size over the next century. In addition to this, the government was changed following the installment of George Yeardley as governor. See, I told you to remember his name. The laws were to be less strict, and there were to be two councils. There would be the Council of State to aid the governor, similar to the types of councils we've already seen. Then there was something radically new which was to be introduced. The General Assembly, known more commonly as Virginia's famous House of Burgesses. The plan was that the General Assembly would be made up of the Council of State and of Burgesses. Burgess was an old English word referring to an elected official who represented a borough, a municipality. Each town, hundred, and plantation would elect two Burgesses, and they would discuss local government. This was not an autonomous legislature being set up. It wasn't even a model of parliament. It was local government giving the settlers a voice in the colony. But that was it. A voice. A motion was only valid if the company approved, and the governor had a veto. 22 Burgesses met in Jamestown on July 30th, 1619, and met for five days. They talked about their own rules, how best to convert the Bowertans, about the crops they should be growing, and then drew up a few suggestions for the company, and then they all went home. This was after all the sickly season, and most of the Burgesses were on the verge of passing out in the stifling hot church. It was nothing grand, it was nothing bold, but... It was the first 
democratic meeting in the Anglo-American colony. This meeting right here is the origins of a democratic tradition which will be waging war on England in a mere 157 years. This is where we'll leave things for this week. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then please visit us online. The website is thehistoryofpodcast.com, where you can sign up for membership if you want to support the show. You can also like us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash thehistoryofpodcast, follow me on Twitter, at HistoryJamie, and you can send me an email, thehistoryofpodcast at gmail.com. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 